Open up your Bibles, Psalm chapter 33, popular popular, uh, scripture reference today. Thank you, Brother Kevin. He used a couple of verses out of here and then the one that we just heard quoted there so nicely by that young lady. And um, so Psalm 33, I'm going to read you a few verses from here. Follow along with me. Let's start with the one that Brother Kevin mentioned this morning, verse 8. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Look down in verse 16 with me. There is no king saved by the multitude of a, of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver them their, their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope. In thee. Uh, I challenge you this morning to think upon those words and upon those verses for the very reason that we even have this day to celebrate, I believe, is only by the mercies of God. And I believe that the men that went before us that founded this country, that signed that declaration that was passed in July 4th, 1777, I believe those men, the majority of those men by far believed in that verse and believed in those verses and believed that God was their only hope. And we'll talk more about that in a second. And I think our history is so critically important. And I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit intimidated this year with all the historians in the house here. I know there's a, Brother Terry's already told me he's going to be, uh, he's going to be critiquing me back there. And I, I thought, oh, he's from Australia. Maybe I'll get a break. But now I find out he's an American history expert. So and Brother Stewart's over there. I know I'm in trouble. This whole side, I'm probably not going <laughs> to, excuse me if I mess something up too bad. Fix me later, all right? But I enjoy studying for this. And it's a pleasure and honor to be up here again this year. But I recommend a guy named David Barton. Uh, if you have, for no reason, for yourself, but if, especially if you have children in your home, you need to get his material. A lot of y'all already know about him and already studied his stuff, but this guy's a great historian and shows he has more old documents than any other person alive. He has a, a whole museum of these ancient documents that prove that the majority of these men were Bible-believing Christians. They weren't deists. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
and uh, in him alone. I mean, if you're a deist, you don't think God's interfering anyway. How's he going to help you? You know, but but these men believed in the providence of God, and we'll see some of that today. We're going to focus in on one man here in just a little bit, and it's a, it's a great honor to be not only here with this wonderful audience, but to have our distinguished guest up here with us. And I'm really intimidated. I, I was in, examining uh, General Washington's coat over here and saw some of those bullet holes through there uh, where they, the providence of God protected him in battle. I think his coat was shot several times in one battle, but he was never harmed. And that's just a, the mercy and the providence of God. But I want to start off with a quote uh, from a man named Levi Preston. I'd never heard of Levi Preston until my studies this year. Uh, but Levi Preston was a, uh, he was a Minuteman and he was involved there at, uh, Concord and, and what happened there on that day, uh, April 19th in 1776. And, uh, they, this was years later. They were interviewing him. They were asking him about, why did you fight? And they were expecting his answer to be some of the reasons that the, in the declaration that were laid out of these usurps of authority and, and these abuses and all the violations of the law that the British government had brought forth against their colony. And uh, he wouldn't satisfy them with that. And so finally they just said, well, why did you fight? And he said very simply that we believed that we had always governed ourselves and that we believed that it should stay that way. And he said they believed that it shouldn't. And that was, the, that was the just of it. We believed that we should have the right to govern ourselves as we always had. Now, you remember that when they came to this country, there was no government. They established the government. The colonies had their own government. They had been governing themselves until the oppressive government across the Atlantic began to oppose them and to uh, abuse them and oppress them. And so then they, they said, we fought the Redcoats because we believed we had the right to govern ourselves as we always had, and they believed that we shouldn't. I will say that about 100 years later than that, Brother Rogers, the same reason the Civil War began here in the United States of America is that some people still believed that we had the right to govern ourselves and not be governed by a central government removed from the people. And so these, these uh, young people, um, these people, excuse me, that, that signed the Declaration also had not forgotten their founding fathers, the Pilgrims. You remember the Pilgrims came here for a particular reason. No, they weren't seeking gold. They weren't seeking, they certainly weren't coming because of the beauty of the land or anything else, and there wasn't much here when they got here. Quite a bit's happened since then, by the way. A lot of advancement happens because of the cause of Christ. And uh, in, in, in this country and around the world, as Brother Kevin brought out this morning, but those pilgrims could have never imagined, I don't think, exactly what God was going to do at that point and what he was going to build. But that didn't matter because, and it doesn't matter what we can see into the future. What matters is, are we faithful in our time? It was said about David that he served his generation. He was faithful, served his generation. And that's what the pilgrims did, and that's what the men did in the 1700s, and that's what God's calling on us to do today, which is to do our bit, I believe would be the, uh, the word in Australia. We say do our duty, do our part. 
And so the pilgrims did their part. These faithful men did their parts. Now, the question, I mean, the, did the pilgrims face any hardships? Tremendous, right? I mean, not only the, the climate, not only the, the Indians, not only disease and everything else, they had to do it. And they pressed forward and they made progress. And, and you have to ask yourself, why? Why not give up and go back? I'll say why. Why did they do it? And it was one reason was for liberty. They wanted liberty to be able to live according to their conscience and to worship their God freely. They wanted to raise their children in that very same way, to have them be able to choose the way they wanted to live and to be able to worship their God. So I say to, to us, do we do the same? Are we pressing forward against opposition? Every generation has their opposition. They all have their hardships that they have to go through. Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves, or are we willing just to go along with evil? Which, as we heard this morning, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, to resist evil, to go against the tide, to go against evil, and not to just give up. Every generation faces this question. But I will say, sometimes in history, because of the magnitude of the moment and what's going on, it's much more critical than others. Would you all agree with me on that? There are certain times, certain points, and certainly in 17, the late uh, middle and late 1760s and into the 1770s, that generation faced some things that no others have faced or will face. And I will say, I'll use a quote, I believe, from General MacArthur. He said, in ordinary times, he said, extraordinary things rarely happen. But in extraordinary times, they often do. And he said about those men in his time, he said, uncommon valor was common. And so this is our generation, guys. This is our time. And so I'm going to paint you a little bit of a timeline, if I can, by the Lord's grace to what happened leading up to the Declaration of Independence. And then I'm going to try to do the impossible. I'm going to try to get us to think back to what it was like then, what these men, the decisions that they were making, how what the impact it was having, what they knew the consequences would be. And then we'll zero in on one man that was involved in this, and we'll learn some things about him as well. So I'll say this. After many years of abuse... This was not something that happened rashly or quickly. There was decades previous that they were getting uh, abused by the government, mainly financially. They were beginning to uh, tax them, things like the stamp tax you're familiar with, the tea tax. Uh, They were looking to weakening the colonies. And they even closed the port of Boston, which was the most uh, busiest port in uh, the country. It really basically uh, resulted in a siege of that area. So much so that they were literally without food. And some of the other colonies found out about it. And and, uh, South Carolina was the first one to send 200 barrels of rice up there just to help them have food and promised them 500 more. So what you see is that these colonies, although individuals were starting to come together in a united cause, they saw the oppression of their brothers and sisters here in America, and they they reached into their own pockets. And began to then help. And so Delaware sent down a couple hundred sheep and other other colonies participated. But it continued on. And what you'll see is that <clears throat> there was an event that happened 
1770 that we'll, we'll zero in on in just a moment that kind of like galvanized things together and then moved uh, things forward, okay? But that wasn't all. They also had now, they had moved standing armies into the colonies, the British had. You know what that means? That means that they, and they, they quartered their, their soldiers in people's houses. That means that Brother Dwayne, that one of their officers could show up at your house and say, hey, we're taking over these rooms right here. Move your family out of there. We're going to live there. You're going to feed us. You're going to take care of us. You know, wash our clothes. You're going to do whatever we tell you to do. How do you feel about that? That was basically Patrick Henry's argument was that coming up in, in March of, of 1776, March, yeah, uh, he said in, in, at the house of, of Virginia House, he said, when will we be stronger? When they have their troops completely quartered in every house? Are we going to be stronger then? He said, no, now is our time. And, and we'll see in just a moment. I think there's three things here. But a standing army, let me just say this, because we, we think about we've had a standing army our entire life, a large standing army. Do you know in this day that was not common? And by the way, armies, the, the men that served in the armies weren't of the highest moral character. Okay? They were very rough and ungodly men as a general rule. And, um, and so they, when they came... They, they, you know what I'm saying, they had no morals. And, um, and they wanted, and so when there was a need for an army, where did they get their army from? From the citizenry. These weren't professional soldiers. These were citizens that were fighting for their, for their families, for their homes, for their own country, for their future generations. These weren't professional soldiers. And so they didn't like the idea of a standing army, and a lot of our uh, founding fathers didn't for good reasons, because it can be used to, against the people as well. And so, as it was being done by Great Britain to their own people. Let me give you three exceptions, or I say three reasons why. I mean, think about this for a second. Let me just read you some stats here. Just think about this. Did America have, a, have an army? No. Did they have a navy? No. Have a central government? No. Okay. Did they have uh, ammunition uh, depots? No. Did they have uh, a, a big war chest? They have a big treasury? No. Did Great Britain have any of those things or all of those things? This country is ju- real, literally just a few. Th- these colonies are literally a hundred years old. When when Great Britain has been a world power for centuries, so now these these farmers are going to take on the the most uh, the powerful nation on the face of the earth, the strongest military influence over the whole earth. How are they going to How are they going to have any chance here? They have 3 million people, okay, and they're spread out all over the whole East Coast. Not n- No big congregations of people. So how are they going to make a difference? Well, I'll say that there's only three things I think that gave them a chance. Number one, they believed in the providence and the favor of God. They trusted in his mercy fighting and him fighting for them. They trusted that their, their cause was pure, if their cause was right, that God would bring it to the just end. Understand, their job, their job was to only do their duty, that God would bring it to the right end, if their cause was just. 
So what does that mean? If we believe that, we have to evaluate our cause and to make sure that we're right with God in this. And they believe that they were. And I know a lot of people will disagree with me about this because God does ordain government. We know that, okay? But when governments disobey their own laws, when they don't obey their own authorities, which in our land is the Constitution, which is established to to tell the government how they're to act, when they begin to disobey their authority, now they lose their privilege to have authority over their people. And, uh, and that's what they believed. They believed that they'd already been governing themselves. The second thing was they believed in a committed and armed people. Now, that second part is very, very important. Committed people with pitchforks aren't going to fare real well against the redcoats. You understand? When they start volleying their, their muskets, it just don't work well with the pitchfork, okay? You have to be armed, and they were armed, and that's one of the things they were trusting in. Patrick Henry said it, three million armed people in the right cause, and we'd be able to do it. He was the first one that got people to actually see that this was going to have to happen, it was going to happen, and that we could actually do this if God be with us. And then the third thing is they believed in leaders. They had to have leaders that were willing to sacrifice for the country. Sacrifice. Do we have any leaders today that we really see sacrificing? You know, if I had to look at any leader that I see that's given up anything, I would say if Donald Trump gave up his billionaire lifestyle to serve the people of the United States in his time, I would say he did that. I don't see many people giving up anything to supposedly be in leadership, but I will remind you, the leaders in the United States of America are we the people. We the people lead our representatives. And if you look at the declaration, it says, when it says the representatives of the people, we the representatives of the people, they understood their position, Brother Dwayne, as the representatives of the people. And so I want to zero in on a little bit of a timeline here. So what is happening after these uh, years of abuses is in 1770, an event happens. Okay, and this event kind of galvanizes the American people and it brings a man to the forefront that um, and really positions him to be a key person in what's going to happen here in the days and months to come with the declaration. But I want to remind you, there's not been a time in history probably where there was such a magnitude of a decision to be made. One writer said, if the world has seldom witnessed a train of events of a more novel or interesting character than those that led up to the Declaration of of the American Independence, he said, it has never seen a body of men placed under more difficult and responsible situations than the signers of that instrument. And he says, and never have we witnessed a more brilliant exhibition of political wisdom and a brighter example of firmness and courage. I'll tell you what, that's only the Lord. You understand the Lord was working through these men, and he bring them, brought them together. And do you think any of these men were strong-willed? Uh, probably every single one of them, or they would not have gotten to the position that they were. And strong-willed men have their opinions. And to get 52 people to come together in agreement on this and to sign it was a work of God. It was unanimous. 
You understand, everyone got in, and all 13 colonies got in. They would not. Matter of fact, the first time it came up for vote, they only passed by a slight margin. And they said, no, nope, that's not good enough. We have to table this, and we've got to discuss it, and we got to wait. And then when only when they could get unanimous, all the colonies supporting it, then we'll take it to the people, and we'll tell them. You see, so... Today, could we ever accomplish that today? No, because we already have our preconceived agendas. Both sides already have their preconceived agendas. All right? And so there's none of this spirit of what's best for the people that happens. And so in 1770, around March 5th, if I'm not mistaken, there was an event that happened. Does anybody know what event that was? It happened in Boston, Massachusetts. Boston Massacre, that's right. Glad someone read their history books. I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't been studying, okay? But the Boston Massacre occurred. And what happened there was the colonists were already stirred up. Here's the sitting armies in their homes and and, and abusing and taking advantage of people, okay? And they were upset about it. And then it was pretty heated. And then one of the uh, officers for the Brits fired a shot. And they fired into the crowd, and they wounded and killed 11 people. I think six died and five wounded or vice versa. 11 total people were shot. That didn't make things any better for them. But what it did was they knew now at this point that there was going to have to be force used in order to get them to stop doing what they were doing. And so after that, there was a man chosen to speak. And so uh, he was from Massachusetts. He was the president of the Congress there. Does anybody know who it was? I'll give you a few more hints and try to see if you can figure him out, okay? He was also, of course, a signer of the Declaration. He was actually the president of the Continental Congress. Therefore, as the president, he was the first one to sign the Constitution, I mean, to sign the Declaration. I see anybody besides Joanna want to try? Go ahead, Joanna. John Hancock. What do we know about John Hancock? What's the one thing that Americans know about John Hancock? Signature, right? Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in school, I was either led to believe or I was taught that that signature was because he was arrogant, that he wrote his signature so big and so bold. But you know what? I don't think that's really why. I think you're going to see why. But he was the first one to sign. And it was said this about him, that he signed with such a firmness that it would never be erased. And I'll tell you the other reason. I don't think he did it for that. You realize that John Hancock was one of two men that Governor Gage said were unpardonable. He said to all the others there in Massachusetts and in Boston, he said, if you guys will lay down your arms, we'll forget the whole thing. He said, with the exception of these two guys, Samuel Adams and John Hancock, he said, they must die. So when he signed that, he knew he's signing his death warrant. If this don't go the way that they hope it will, if God's not with them, then it's over for me, okay? But I want everybody to make sure they know I was here, okay? And he signed it with a big, bold uh, signature there. But I'll tell you some other things about him. Uh, Anything else you know about him? He was extremely wealthy, right? You know how he got his wealth? Well, well, you may not have known. Both of his father and his grandfather were preachers. 
And so he didn't have a lot growing up, and he didn't get a good education. So his uncle basically adopted him, and his uncle was the wealthiest man in the province. Okay, he he was extremely wealthy. So, in matter of fact, he was a big uh, giver to many institutions, including the one he gave the most to was Harvard University. And so, guess what? Here comes John Hancock into his house. He sends him to Harvard. He gets a, he graduates from Harvard. Then he sends him to England to get some training. He comes back in 1764, and his uncle dies. And now, John Hancock takes over the entire estate. At 27, 27 years old, not being raised like that from his youth, okay, that's quite a change. But you know what it was said about him? It was said that he continued uh, to operate. He said he continued his former course of regularity, industry, and moderation. It said many depended upon him, and to those he was kind and liberal, and he maintained a high reputation for honor and integrity. And so when it came time for him to give the speech after the Boston Massacre, the Boston Massacre, there was one problem. He was popular with the people. He is already a trusted leader to some degree, but they weren't sure about his patriotism. Why do you think they might have questioned his patriotism? Do you think going against England would have had any impact on his wealth? Where do you think most of his wealth came from? His negotiation, his trading with Great Britain. And so they knew this guy is closely tied to the crown financially, and we're not sure if he's really in on the patriot cause or not. So when he got up to give the speech, that's the thought of the day. And I want to read you a little bit of his speech here. It says, once Mr. Hancock was appointed to deliver the speech, he got up to talk. First, he talked about his attachment to righteous government and his enemy of tyranny. And then he started to turn loose on them. He began to talk about George III and having sent his troops across the Atlantic. He says to assist a band of, he says not to assist a band of traitors, but to trample on the rights and liberties of his most loyal subjects. He says, those rights and liberties, which as a father, he ought to ever regard. And as a king, he is bound in honor to defend from violation, even at the risk of his own life. He called out the king of England saying, these are your people. These are you say you rule over these. You're supposed to protect them even up to to your death of your own life. He went on to say about the guys that actually carried out that murder that day. He said, let the sad tale of death never be told without a tear. Let not a heaving bosom cease to burn with manly indignation at the relation of it. And he says, through the long tracks of history, he says, let every parent tell the shameful story to his listening children till tears of pity glisten in their eyes or boiling passion shakes their tender frame. I think he wanted to make sure his children understood where they came from so they didn't go back again. He wanted this story to be told over and over again to see why they did what they did and to make sure. Matter of fact, he even said later on in his in his speech, he said let our, he says, let our, our misfortunes instruct posterity 
to guard against these evils. There's a lesson there for us to be learned. And as far as calling out the men that did it, he basically said that they were murderers, that they, uh, their hands had innocent blood on them, and he says they weren't deserving of breathing the air that God supplied. But he did say the eye of heaven penetrates the darkest chambers of the soul, and you, though screened from human observation, must be arraigned and must lift your hands red with blood of those whose death you have procured at the tremendous bar of God. He said, God will judge you for what you did. And so, as a signer, he was the president and the first one to sign. And he was obviously um, a very important in those times. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of correspondence between General Washington and him uh, because of his position there. As a matter of fact, we've studied in the past uh, Jonas Clark. Y'all remember him a, a year or two ago? He was. There was three men when Paul Revere made his run into uh, Lexington, and when he pulled in, there were three men in the room. It was John Hancock, Samuel Adams, and Jonas Clark. And Samuel Adams talked John Hancock into leaving so he wouldn't be captured, okay, because of their position. And Jonas Clark, of course, stayed there to fight with his men. But uh, but he carried on faithfully throughout the war, and after that he became the governor of Massachusetts where he served actually until his death at the age of 55. And I'll just give you a few facts left that were said about him. Um, it was said about Mr. Hancock that he... Um, no man perhaps actually expended more wealth or was more willing to make greater sacrifices than him. As a matter of fact, and they were the British had occupied Boston, and so they said to get them out, we're going to have to bomb Boston, which meant most of his commercial uh, businesses would have been damaged and destroyed and business, his home even would be fired upon, and he said... Let it, let it, if that's what needs to happen, don't let me get in the way. You guys go for it. Do what you need to do. And it says that, he said this, this quote, and this I'll leave you with this. He said, whatever the liberties of his country should require it, he said, I surrender all. I surrender all. I think Brother Kevin used that word a lot this morning. And, you know, that's what God's asking. Are we trusting him with our all? And are we doing our part? Are we doing our duty? Are we training up our children, the next generation? I think about our day and our time, and the Boston Massacre was a thing for them. And, you know, I think about the COVID situation for us. To me, that was our, this is our, our time. How much liberty was stolen because of that, if you go back a little further, the time before that when liberties were lost, you remember September the 11th, 2001, when that event happened, supposedly for our protection, our government started stealing our freedoms, our privacy. Okay, and now it's promoted, it's it's, it's progressed to the point where they shut down our businesses. Tell us when we can do business and when we cannot do business. When did that become part of that? They limit the travel and where you can go as a healthy human being and a citizen of the great state of Texas and of the United States. Guys, these are unheard of abuses of our liberties. 
And now what can we do about it? Well, let's, number one, recognize it. Number two, let's point it out in our families. And number three, let's stand against it. Okay? Now, I will say that, Brother Kevin, you're right. We have recourse here still in America where we have some opportunity to replace bad leadership. But I'll say this, if you continue to reward stupidity, you'll get a whole lot more of it. Okay? And so we have to hold our our representatives to the feet. You know who your representative is? If you live here, your representative is Ernest Bells. That's your Texas House representative. That's the guy that's the closest to you. You need to start with him. Work up to your state senators. Uh, Dan Crenshaw is your U.S. representative here. You know who your senators are probably. We got one patriot and one yellow coat. Okay. We got one rhino named Jim Corrin. I hope he hears this. Okay. But you got to know who's, who's on your side. You, do you understand that? Can I give just a five second or maybe a 35 second? Do you realize that for the last 28 years in the state of Texas that the Republicans have owned the governor's house, the Senate, and the Congress? And did you know for over, for those same 28 years, every year, you know what's been on the docket? One of the Republican priorities is to decrease property tax. Anybody see any of that happen? Nope. I didn't see it. Did you know when did it become the federal government's responsibility to protect the citizens of Texas? We should be still in our own border. What are we waiting on? We have the troops to do it. We just don't have the resolve to do it. That's the problem. And so you must put our people on guard. They cannot pass the buck, you understand, to somebody else. The House, the Texas House went into special session, uh, and they went in for a 30-day special session to work on property tax. The House showed up for one day, passed the bill that they were required, and then they left and wouldn't come back to negotiate with the Senate, and so nothing got done. Now they just started their second one. I don't know if it's going to go any better or not. My point is we have to replace the leaders that we have. We have to. Okay, and we might, and it's going to happen by you telling your friends, your neighbors, no, this is, you need to go with the people that really love freedom, love liberty, respect personal decisions and about how do we operate, okay, within the laws of the land and enforce the laws that we have. Amen? That's my political note for today. But I thank God for men like John Hancock. Men that went before that made great sacrifices. He died at 55. Hardly any of these guys survived long after the war. Many of them died in the war. There was their, their, their financial state. I mean, they didn't go into office poor and come out rich like uh, Nancy Pelosi. They went in rich and came out poor in the most parts, or at least poorer. And so look for people who are willing to sacrifice, and let's be that people as well. And most of all, Brother Kevin, you're right. If we don't... Hate evil. Hate it. Why? There should never be another abortion committed in the great state of Texas. Never. And anybody that does commit one of those needs to be imprisoned. It's murder. Let's call it what it is. And let's stand for that, all right? And uh, we got great examples that have gone before us. You know, I'll say I was over in uh, France on D-Day, June 6th. I was there on Normandy where the men come aboard and and where they came on the the beaches there at Utah and Omaha Beach. 
and uh, Point du Hoc, you know, where the rangers scaled the, 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 the rock there. Is that a steep rock, Samuel, or what? I mean, it just, it's not climbable. It's not possible, you know. But they shot their ropes up there, and they climbed those ropes and ladders, you know, and they, they knocked out the, that, that position. So, man, we got such great examples before us. Let's don't be the generation that drops the ball. Let's pick it up. Let's run with it. Do our part. And I know God will bless you. And ultimately, we have to look to the Lord. If he be with us, if our cause be judged, he'll give us favor. It's not over until it's over. And then after that, we'll be with Jesus. 